You're listening to Mr. Radio, and I'm your host, Marshall. Called ardent and assured and a first-class pianist by the New York Times, he has appeared in partnership with many of the world's leading singers and instrumentalists, including over five dozen artists on the roster of the Metropolitan Opera. Passionately committed to the performance of chamber music, he is a founding member of the Palisades Virtuosi, the Janus Consort, the Hudson Trio, Kaleidoscope, the New World Trio, and the Manchester Chamber Players. He has been the pianist and harpsichordist of the Oberlin Orchestra, the New Jersey Philharmonic, and the Westchester Symphony, and is currently keyboardist of the Albany Symphony and its contemporary chamber ensemble, Dogs of Desire. Since 1985, he has been associated with the Southern Vermont Arts Center and his resident Manchester Music Festival. In 1991, during Carnegie Hall's Centennial Week celebration, he recreated the earliest known piano recital by Franz Rumo to have been played there. That same year, he made his international debut in Iceland playing two recitals, one all Grieg, the other all Russian. His performance was reviewed by Dagblad Vizier Reykjavik Iceland as performed with considerable assurance, tremendous speed, a very special atmosphere was established, which was maintained throughout. It is my honor to introduce today's guest, Ron Levy. Welcome to our show, Ron. Well, thank you very much, Marshall. That list of, of stuff on a Saturday morning makes me kind of tired. <laughs> <laughs> I think you should be very proud of that list. I I am. Let me just add that uh, that list could never have happened without the support of a lot of people in the wings, including my parents and my patron, Gene Geisler, and many other people. We opened the show with Midnight in Seville, <laughs> Opus 30, from your album Moonstruck. And Fanfare Magazine's Robert Schuslopper reviewed this album by stating... In a circuitous way, it was his flair for the great American songbook that led to Moonstruck. Could you explain why he would write this? <laughs> well, he is alluding to an anecdote that I t told him. I've done a lot of pop music over the years. As a matter of fact, for 20-plus years, I was the music director and featured pianist at the historic Equinox Hotel up in Manchester, Vermont. And so what he's referring to is I happen to be at a private party, and as does happen with pop pianists, you tend to play repertoire that you've played, you know, many, many, many times that wear a deep groove in your brain. So I was kind of just kind of drifting off a little bit, and when I do that, I find that that's a really good time for creativity. And all of a sudden, a light bulb moment occurred, all of this while I'm playing The Way You Look Tonight, and I thought of a project that would involve all music, both classical and pop, that had to do with the moon. So that's what he's referring to, that, that the uh, pop pieces that I was playing kind of led to that idea. And so far, I've recorded two of the albums that were in my light bulb moment, and I have at least two more albums, one of which I'm at work on. That's going to be titled New Moon, which is all pieces alluding to the moon, which were composed in the 20th century and later, 
and then another one which will feature all songs and arias and art songs that were inspired by the moon. And there might be a fifth one lurking out there that will be an instrumental album. So it, it probably will end up being four or five CDs. Then you've got a lot of projects on your list there. You know, one thing he mentions in this review is the Great American Songbook. And yes. I started this show, and now I've interviewed bluegrass players, rock musicians, jazz musicians, and and there's always terminology that I'm not familiar with and that maybe listeners aren't familiar with, and so I've decided I'm making this an educational program. What exactly is the Great American Songbook? The Great American Songbook, I don't think specifically refers to an actual songbook, but it would be a very, very popular mainstream pop music. A lot of it probably would be the Gershwins and Cole Porter and that ilk. But while we're doing this show, I'm sitting in front of my computer and I'm going to Google that and I uh, will have a chance to amend that comment if if need be. Okay. <laughs> well, while we're, we're talking about your album, Moonstruck. Yes. I have a question. I recently interviewed a rock music artist. And, yes. And he created what he called a concept album. And, and I know there are a lot of concept albums out there. There sure are. Would you consider a Moonstruck to be a concept album? In as much as everything re- in some way, either directly or obliquely, refers to the moon, yes. And that's uh, what uh, inspired it all. The moon, of course, being a primordial element in all of our lives, transcends pop music, jazz, classical, you name it. The things that would come to mind for everybody individually are are far too numerous to even uh, cite examples. Now, in, in researching your musical career... And in just what you stated now, I I believe you work in all kinds of genres, not just classical, but you do ragtime and and, uh, jazz. I do. And you also do improvisation. I do. (laughs) Can one do improvisation in classical music, or is that just something that you can do in jazz? It depends on the period of classical music that we're talking about. Just for uh, people that are not exactly sure what we're talking about, improvisation basically is the addition of notes on the spur of the moment that are not on the printed page. This goes all the way back to the advent of music. There There was always improvisatory music. In early music, I would say up until the end of the classical period, the performer was expected to improvise. It was not expected that the performer would adhere strictly to the printed note. In the time of Mozart, as a matter of fact, the uh, practice of adding notes and whatnot got so over overladen and whatnot that Mozart at times had to admonish the performer, you know, play my notes, you know, don't put too many notes in there. And of course, improvisation is the hallmark of jazz which is basically taking a chord structure and an expected melody and fleshing it out in different notes and keys and rhythms and riffs, things like that. 
I don't know. I, I, I'm rambling. I, did I answer your question? I, I believe so. I was unaware that there was improvisation in classical music. Then again, I, I believe one of the pieces that we're going to be playing says impromptu or, or some such ilk. Just some other aspects of your career. You're in demand as a conductor, uh, a lecturer, a critic, and a writer of musical subjects, as well as an adjudicator. What is an adjudicator? An adjudicator is a judge. How are you incorporating being a judge in music? Frequently, I'm asked to be a judge at a competition, and I'm proud of the fact that it's not just a piano competition. Sometimes it can be non-piano or what I call apples and oranges, which is competitions that have a certain age range, and then it could be an oboe and a violin and a uh, uh, vocalist competing against one another. What I've always, from the get-go, been interested in all genres of music. At home, my parents would play something on the record player, and they could hop from Van Cliburn's uh, Tchaikovsky B-flat to uh, Peggy Lee to, you know, any number of people. And the interesting thing is we compartmentalize now, but at that time, I just considered that music was music and that certain music had a different kind of beat and a certain kind of flavor, but I never really made the distinction between so-called classical music and pop music. I remember that when I was a freshman in high school, my band director said, uh, what kind of pianist are you? And I said, excuse me. And he said, well, are you a classical pianist or a pop pianist? And I said, excuse me. And so I, it took a while for me to, to figure out what he was talking about. If he were to ask you that today, what would you say? I'd say, excuse me. Okay. <laughs> well, oh, come on. That was the setup. <laughs> well, 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 excuse me. I have another... I, I have another educational question here. Yes, uh, sir. Midnight in Seville, Opus 30. Oh, my God. For, what for, a, a delicious piece. For listeners who are not familiar with classical music, can you tell us what constitutes an opus? Oh, okay. Um, an opus is a body of work. And in classical music, it's usually one composition that kind of stands alone. So Opus 1 would refer to, for instance, a piano sonata or a nocturne or something like that. That's usually the way it works, but not always. Sometimes you can have more than one substantial work in an opus. But opus is kind of, it's, it's convenient for us to keep track of when something was written during the composer's lifetime. And also, uh, composers tend to use opuses so that when their works are published and immortalized, we make sure that we have a complete listing of what they've done. Since you're such an eclectic musician, I'm going to move from classical discussion to uh, jazz and pop. You included Peter DeRose's Deep Purple on your Moonstruck album, and DeRose, I believe, was an American composer of jazz and pop music during the era of... Tin Pan Alley. Right. Okay. Can you guess what my next question is going to be? What What is Tin Pan Alley? <laughs> Tin Pan Alley refers to a region in southern New York City where all the composers hung out, and that was Tin Pan Alley, and and uh, that's where the Gershwins uh, hi- 
from, and, you know, there was a lot of sharing of ideas down there. People would bring their own compositions into music publishers, and the resonant pianist would sit down and, and read it, and the publisher would decide whether it was appropriate for publication, et cetera, et cetera. Can we segue into Deep Purple from that? We sure can. Okay. Do you want to introduce it for us? Uh, this is a lovely piece. This is one of the ones that when I'm playing at a party or or an event, I embroider. But this is the actual published version by DeRose, which became wildly popular, uh, has been since uh, covered by many, many artists. It's just a lovely piece. Well, I will now shut my mouth and let the music talk. Let's stop talking about it and listen to Deep Purple. You got it.
That was Deep Purple, composed by Peter DeRose from the album Moonstruck, played by today's guest, Ron Levy. In, uh, in reading up about you, I find that many prominent composers have written vehicles for you. Can you explain this aspect of your career? Well, I've always been uh, interested in contemporary music, thanks to one of my high school teachers, Diana Arlick. And that interest was further perpetuated by my Juilliard teacher, uh, Leland Thompson, who is one of the assistants to Rosina Levine there. Both of those ladies were very intellectually motivated. They were really champions of contemporary music. So I I kind of got it from osmosis, and and it didn't seem anything terribly alien. I was, uh, at a very early age, nurtured on uh, the modern Russians and uh, some of the... uh, what were then modern Americans. One of my go-to pieces when I was quite young was the Cat and the Mouse humoresque of uh, Aaron Copeland, uh, which was actually his first published opus. And at the time when I was holding forth as a young piano student, I, I, I'm kind of embarrassed to say that it was a new composition. Now, now it is hardly a new composition. So anyway, that love and comfort with contemporary music has followed me through my entire career. At Oberlin and Juilliard, I hobnobbed with some of the uh, composition students that also uh, took place at the Manchester Music Festival, where I was on the faculty and board for about 25 years. And we had a lot of uh, composers coming through. Eventually, I just started uh, asking uh, people if they'd be interested in writing. Fortunately, they they were. You know, when you become friendly with a composer, they, they kind of get to know your playing, so they kind of can take their own uh, musical language and customize it to your your strengths, hopefully your strengths, and not challenge you too much uh, to your uh, uh, abilities that are not that strong. And the whole thing really took a quantum leap when we formed our beloved trio, the Palisades Virtuosi. This is a trio that I've belonged to for about, I was trying to figure this out, I think we're in our 18th year. The trio is Margaret Swinkowski, flute, and Don McCrinsky, clarinet, and Ron Levy, piano. If any any aficionado of chamber music realizes right away that those three instruments are not historically paired. Why? Because the feeling is that the uh, timbre and the range of the flute and clarinet overlap too much to make it a really effective choice of two instruments that are paired with the piano. This is actually not true. Taken as a whole, the range of the flute and the range of the clarinet go uh, very high and very low. Plus, there are other instruments within those instrumental families, the flute family and the clarinet family, that my colleagues are very proficient on. For instance, piccolo and bass clarinet. So it gives us really a a wide range of sound for a composer to deal with. Because there wasn't too much music available for that combination, we 
ran out of repertoire in our first couple of seasons together. And we said, okay, well, what do we do? Do we play the same handful of pieces ad nauseum, or do we call it a day with this trio, uh, or do we do something else? And uh, another light bulb moment, which was a, a very, uh, in hindsight, a very expensive light bulb, is that we decided to start commissioning new works for our configuration, which we did. And I'm very, very pleased and proud that in the winter of two, uh, 2021, we are now closing in on almost 100 works that have been commissioned or gifted to the Palisades Virtuosi. That's extraordinary. And uh, Musical America has called us the commissioners, and we uh, ado- adopted that as, as our kind of uh, watch word, and we're very, very proud of it. You mentioned instruments for this group, but you did not mention harpsichord. Does harpsichord ever take part in this? It does. To date, we have not received a commission that calls for the harpsichord. However, in all of our concerts, our concerts are usually a mix between works that are in the standard repertoire and uh, our commissions. So we have taken works that were uh, that specified harpsichord and performed them. We also do what we call corruptions, kind of tongue-in-cheek. We, as do many groups, we take a pre-existing work and then we kind of reconfigure it with different instruments. So something that might have had uh, originally a violin uh, can be taken by the flute, or a viola could be taken by the clarinet. A specified piano could be a harpsichord or vice versa. Those are the Palisade Virtuosi corruptions. And we do anticipate, because we've had a a lot of uh, inquiries about where can they get one of our corruptions. A favorite corruption of ours is the Beethoven Spring Sonata, which works very well for that configuration. You ran into my next question because, believe it or not, we're running out of time. Oh, Uh, I believe it. I'm a blabber. If if (laughs) listeners, if listen, well, I, I have two more elements here to this yeah. interview. I just, I just want to interrupt you two seconds to say that I'm very relieved and proud that I was right about the Great American Songbook. So it does not refer to any specific book, and it is basically uh, a collection of uh, pop standards okay. by Gershwin, Porter, etc. Great. We're not going to get flamed then by uh, <laughs> evil reviews. I have a very quick question. Yes, we have just about a minute left. Okay, First of all, where can listeners purchase your music? At present, because we use a number of prominent CD distributors, easiest thing to do, and I did want to say that if anybody is interested in purchasing either Moonstruck or Moonstruck 2, they are available through me if you're interested in making a contribution to the Unitarian Society of Ridgewood, I will give $10 of a purchase price back to the church. So I will give you uh, the good deal of $15 per. 
and then $10 goes back to the Unitarian Society. And how do they contact you for this? Basically, I think the easiest thing to do is make a check out to the Unitarian Society, uh, send it to 113 Cottage Place, Ridgewood. Do you know the zip, Marshall? Of course you do. 07450. Okay. Uh, in the memo section, put Moonstruck, and the, uh, Ann Peretti will uh, notify me that a check has come in, and as long as we have your address, I'll send it right out to you. Okay. And it'll be autographed. And this is going to be difficult for you because I'm really going to put you on the spot now. We have five seconds left. We can close out with yes. To a Wild Rose or Lovely. To Impromptu in uh, G-flat major. You pick. Uh, well, how long do you have for the music to play? Well, we're running it out right now. Oh, uh, uh, well, the uh, G-flat impromptu is a valedictory piece written at the end of his life, so let's go with that. You've got it. You've been listening to Mr. Radio, and I'm your host, Marshall. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of Mr. Radio.